Let's pray. Creator God, we are grateful for words. Even though they fall so far short so often of what even we want to say, and no doubt fall so far short even when you say them to us in the way we hear them and interpret them and suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We're grateful for words because you've revealed yourself with words to us in your word. You've given us words to express our adoration to you, our worship to you, and most of all, we thank you for words because they all point us to the word, the eternal son who became flesh and explained you to us. We pray that as we attend to your words in your word this morning, that we would be changed, that our understanding of you would be elevated, that our understanding of ourselves in light of who you are would be elevated, that our lives would be changed, that we would know you and fear you and rest in you alone, and because of it, be so different than those who don't know who you are. Lord, I thank you for this time together, and we pray the Spirit would work powerfully through the preaching of the Word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Anna, for that. That was a powerful reflection on the psalm we'll be looking at This morning, Psalm 139, if you'd open your Bibles there. I hope you've been reading the sermon prep that we send out every week. Jan Buck's been writing it this summer in our Psalm series. And Jan is a a student of the Word. She loves the Word. She has been blessing us with deep, thoughtful reflections on the Word. Walt typically does that beautifully for us. Jan uh, took it for the summer, and I'm so grateful. If you see Jan, thank her for that. I've told her that I'm now just cutting and pasting that and including it right in my sermon prep that I do with other commentaries. The, Jan, the Buck commentary is what I'm using now, so I'm appreciative of that. I'm appreciative of, uh, of Anna's reflection on this. She's, she's been meditating on this. We asked her to do this, and she, she's been meditating on it for weeks and putting this together for us, and I'm deeply thankful for it. Uh, this is a psalm that helps us tremendously. Th- this This portion of the Word of God is viewed by many as the height of Hebrew poetry. It is a beautiful and profound piece of poetry that Anna helped us think about already so powerfully. And we need to attend to it. It is tremendously helpful for us and we need help. We live in a world, in a culture, in a country, in a state, in a city that needs help. We are a very sinful, broken, rebellious, wounded, frail, fragmented people. And we need help, not just because of the 
gross racism and bigotry that we're seeing in Charlotte and many other places. We need help because human beings don't know God and human beings don't know who we are in light of who God is and therefore don't know how we're supposed to live our lives and don't have the power to live them if we even knew how to live them. And we need to go to a psalm like this and learn who God is, who we are, and what life should look like. We need help. This psalm helps us know who God is in a powerful way that I hope you've come to hear from the Word this morning and be changed by this view of God we have in Psalm 139. But also we have a powerful anthropology as well as a theology, a teaching on what we are as humans, who we are as humans, and we desperately need that because that really is the answer to the kind of racism and bigotry and devaluing of humans, whatever it looks like, whether because of their race or because they're not just big enough or born enough or healthy enough or like us enough to get the dignity and value and respect that all human beings deserve. We need a basis for these terms we throw out all the time like civil rights and universal human rights and human dignity. We need to stand up and say, why? Why do we have dignity? Don't just throw pithy expressions at me, slogans like a motivational speaker expecting me to value myself and other people if you don't give me reasons for it grounded in absolute truth that doesn't change whether I believe it or not. We need a view of human beings that is from our creator, that is from God, to understand anything. A good meal, a piece of art, anything. I just got back late last night from Portland where I was speaking on Christianity and art. I was by far the least artistic person at the conference and indeed the entire city of Portland. (laughs) But they asked me to come and talk about Christianity and the arts. I'm an artist wannabe. I love art. I can't do artistic things at all, but oh, I so admire those who can. And, and a hip-hop collective called Humble Beast and Western Seminary put this together, so I came with many, many others, artists, theologians, to think about what it means to understand art as a Christian. How do you understand art without a definition of a human being? Why do we even like it? What's the value of art? Why, why is it something we're drawn to? Why do we spend tons of resources and, and time and energy and effort to make things that just make us say, wow, beautiful. Why is that so important to us? Why is what Anna did so helpful and beautiful? I love my dog, I really do, but Anna's poem would have meant nothing to Bo. I guess he would have enjoyed some of the tones. But the words, the combinations of words, the the two languages that were used, woven together, the insightfulness of those words, no, that is a treasure for humans made by a God who is an artist, a divine artist who instilled in us a love for beauty and goodness and righteousness. And unless we understand who we are before the God who made us, we'll never understand anything rightly. This 
is a disturbing hymn as well as a greatly comforting and helpful psalm, hymn, song, expression of praise. This hymn is no doubt in the mind of the poet Francis Thompson when he wrote his poem, The Hound of Heaven. It describes God as a hound, like on a a hunting trip, going after the prey, uh, going after the fox, or whatever it is that hound is going after, baying, going after it till it trees that and captures it. The hound of heaven, a bit of a disturbing way to describe God, the God who comes after us like a hound on a hunt. The hound of heaven begins this way. I fled him. Down the nights and down the days, I fled him. Down the arches of the years, I fled him. Down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. You may think it insane to run from God. You may think it completely irrational and nonsensical to run from God, and it is all of those things. But it is something we all do, have done, will do. Because we are prone to insanity. We are prone to lapses in rationality of understanding who God is and who we are before him. And so we like Adam and Jonah and Peter and David run from God. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you are right in the bosom of God, resting there. Maybe you are running from him and have been for a long time. Maybe you're deeply and profoundly tempted to do just that right now. And I pray that this psalm will avail you of all of those temptations and thoughts because of who God is and who we are. Let's read Psalm 139 together. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, 
even there. Your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me. When as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, the hound of heaven is coming after you this morning and that's exactly what you want. That's exactly who he is. He's the God who comes after us in our frailty, in our fallenness, in our sin, in our weakness. He's the God who comes after us and He gives us an entirely new life in Him when He brings us into relationship with Him so that we no longer live as children of the darkness. We no longer live as those who have no life in God. We are now found in God, in Christ, and everything's different now. And now, so when our world displays the horrific sin and brokenness all around us, we are then able to be radically different than all of that so that we can live the way Romans, 1, Romans 12 tells us. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. That's what's going on in the end of this psalm. Hating what's evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. 
outdo one another in showing honor. And this is the gospel-transformed life, what it looks like on a daily basis for the people of God. Let's not lead with politics. Let's care about it. But let's lead with the life-transforming truth of the gospel, the good news of God for us in Christ that saves us and makes all things new. Let's not lead with mere human solutions and human efforts, but let's lead with the gospel. Let's care more about the gospel than even the amendments to the Constitution. It's evil that's our problem, and it's the gospel that defeats it, and that invades every corner of our lives, to be sure. But let's be known for what is most important and the only true hope, and that is life in Christ. We need a view of the world that this psalm gives us to support what we would like to see ourselves become and what we would love to see this world become. And it gives us the confidence to know it will become that one day when heaven and earth are made one. We need a view of the world that starts with an all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere-present, holy God. We need a view of humans that will actually lead us to treat humans with dignity and value and respect no matter what their skin color, no matter what their class in a society, no matter what their socioeconomic status, no matter what they have done or not done, we don't define human beings the way Hollywood does or Madison Avenue does. We define human beings the way God does, and that changes everything. We've got to have a radically different view of the world grounded in God's perspective, a view of life as it's intended to be by God and experienced in accountability to Him and dependence on Him, depending on His wise, loving, just care. And then we let that view of God and of ourselves and of all human beings invade our politics, invade our view of art, invade our view of a good meal or cup of coffee, invade our view of dating. It invades everything in life, but it starts with knowing God and knowing what it means to be human. In his presence, this psalm is about God. But it's about us too. You know, I used to use a phrase that I stopped using. I'm working on a book called 21 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. (laughs) And one of them is, it's not about you. Now, it's not ultimately about you. It's not centrally about you. But it's kind of about you. God made you in his image, right? He sent his son to die for sinners just like you. He brings you to himself in Christ as a child of God, a co-heir with Christ. I guess that's kind of about you in a pretty important way. And so, so let's say these things wisely and not simplistically. And, and we get an amazing view of God, but then... As a consequence, an amazing view of human beings. And I love how Tim Keller has thought about this passage. I'm always helped by Tim Keller when I listen to his sermons or read his books. And and he talks about this psalm as really getting across three things 
to us. Yes, it's about God and ourselves and therefore then how we should live, but it's about an inescapable reality, he says, an undeniable and inescapable reality about who God is. He's everywhere present. Now, this could easily slip into a theology lesson where we use lots of words that start with omni, right? And those words are helpful, but there is something profoundly personal about this theology lesson. Actually, it's about God being all-powerful and all-knowing, about God being everywhere present. But the way presence is described in Hebrew here and elsewhere in the Old Testament is before the face of God. In other words, David's saying, no matter where I am, there's your face. I turn here and your face is there. I I could go to Sheol, the place of the dead, and your face is there. I could go to the heavens, your face is there. I could go to the depths, the darkness, the light. No matter where I go, there's your face. And depending on how you see that face, you will either find great hope and great comfort or great terror. And that's what we have here in this passage. We have an inescapable reality of who God is, but then a radical threat, a radical threat to our own independence, our own self-determination, our own autonomy, our own ability to follow our hearts and live for ourselves and grab the gusto and, and make our own lives for ourselves. All these things you hear in every Disney movie and beer commercial are not true. You don't have one speck of independence, of self-determination in this passage. Before God, before God, oh yes, we hope to raise children who one day will have a degree of independence from us, right? Right? Yes. (laughs) But none of us is ever ultimately independent of God at all. Utterly dependent upon him for everything and in his presence, before his face, every second of every day. So there's an inescapable reality of God's power and knowledge and most of all presence and there's a radical threat that comes with that but if we stay in it and respond to that fear, that healthy, holy, even terror of God being with us all the time, that will be terror if we're honest about our own sin and rebellion and ugly thoughts we had even this morning. I am so thankful. My thoughts are never being recorded and then played in church. I, you I would never preach here again if you just heard what I thought this morning. But you'd probably never come here again if we knew what you thought this morning. So we're all in this together. If we're honest, when even those who know us best and whom we trust most, we can still fear. Oh, but maybe if they know this, they won't love me anymore. Maybe if they knew that in high school I did that, they won't love me anymore. And when we realize that this God, who is everywhere present and all-powerful and holy and all-knowing, loves us, well, that's the gospel. That's the good news of God for us in Christ. But we'll get to that. 
let's look at what's happening here. Uh, God is everywhere present. He's everywhere present with his whole being. He's not present like a, uh, the air in this room. Don't think that way. Think very personally present. Don't think of him as, as air. Think of him as a person present everywhere. This is a mind-blowing thought. That's exactly what David says. He's everywhere present and he has complete knowledge. He knows everything, past, present, future. He doesn't wait to gain new information to know anything. It's happening right now for him in complete fullness. His knowledge never lacks in any way. And he's all-powerful. He alone is able to do all his holy will. He is holy. He is uniquely and distinctly separate from all creation and all sin. That's his majesty and his holiness. This God is God, and we should tremble in his presence. That's what we're finding here. Throughout this psalm, we hear these things about God. And then when we get to verses 19 through 22, we see not only is he all-knowing and all-powerful, not only is he everywhere present and holy, he is a God of wrath and justice who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. How do we relate to this God? How do we know this God? Look how it starts. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. That's a done deal. There's nothing left for you to find out about me. Hear how personal this is? How relational this is. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. The most simple mundane things of life. God knew when your eyes opened this morning. He was with you in full knowledge of what happened last night and what's going to happen today when you open your eyes this morning. He'll be with you when you climb back into bed tonight and close those eyes again. He'll be fully aware of when you go into REM, come out, everything. He's fully aware. He's fully present. The mundane things of like when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern not just my external actions, but my thoughts from afar, from way off. You didn't have to wait to find them out. Even my thoughts you know. You search out my path and my lying down. You know it all. You're acquainted with all my ways. What do you want more than to be known? What do you you hate more than being missed? Understood, mischaracterized, not known. What's worse than loneliness? Feeling unknown and unloved and appreciated. God knows you perfectly. That's what he created you for, to know him and be known by him. And this is unsettling to David. I've come to understand this psalm very differently than I used to in studying it. I don't, I don't think he likes this idea at the onset here. I think God's being everywhere present as we see, all knowledgeable as we see through this psalm, is unsettling to David. The words he uses actually have a negative tone to them. Look what he says. Verse five, you hem me in. You, You restrain me. You constrain me. I don't have some sort of unlimited freedom. I don't have self-determination in this way. I don't have this autonomy, this independence from you. You hand me in. You're running the show. Behind and before, you lay your hand upon me. These are not happy words yet. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And wonderful here tends to just have positive connotations for us. I don't think it's positive here. I think it's, I can't handle this. I can't take this in. This this is making my head explode and making me very uncomfortable. 
I'm not managing my life the way I'm inclined to. I can't get away from you. So high I can't attain it. And then in verse 7, he shows his cards, I think, that he actually would like to flee. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Where can I go? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. Now, what's important to know is Amos actually grabs this passage and paraphrases it when he's talking about God's pursuit to judge rebellious sinners. I don't think this is positive. I I don't think this is, oh, this is wonderful. No, this is terrifying to David. He knows his sin. He knows he has the heart of an adulterer as well as his behavior of a murderer, of a liar. He knows what's in his heart. He knows he betrayed his nation. He knows these things. And so when he thinks about God's presence everywhere, everywhere he turns, there's the face of God. It's terrifying to him. He doesn't like this idea. But then in verse 10, I really think he turns a corner and he remembers the whole character of God. And the whole tone changes, I think, here in verse 10. Even though your hand shall lead me. Even there, no matter where I go, your hand, he remembers the hand of God as a hand that leads as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me, right? He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He remembers God, and God's hand does that sort of thing. And he says, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. The light about me is night, even the darkness. It's not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Darkness cannot conquer God. He is light. Death cannot conquer God. He is life. And his transformed view of God that he knew, but now he knows better, gives him an understanding of himself now as he builds on this understanding of God. For you form my inward parts. Not just my body, but my inward parts. The the embryo you formed. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. That's a beautiful image, isn't it? It's very meaningful to me. Not because I'm a knitter, but because my wife is. And actually, my wife is an astoundingly gifted knitter. Now, sadly, she doesn't have a lot of need for it living in Southern California anymore. But in Connecticut and Chicago, I actually brought some of her hand-knit woolens for you to see. Yes, here she is. Hi. Hi. That's my wife. Look at this. Look at this. Donna made these sweaters. Look. She knitted these sweaters together. Yes. Is that beautiful? Yes. Look at that. Yes, bravo. Yes. We lived in Denmark. And when we were in Denmark, Donna said, I want to make a sweater to remember our time in Denmark. So she sort of freestyled the sweater with things to remember of Denmark, like a bicycle, right? 
It says Denmark down here. That's the apartment we lived in in Denmark, on the street we lived down in Denmark. She threw a tree in there, just... just yeah, she... Uh, uh, Tigers was the name of the football team I played for. Oh, look at this. She knitted this together. Do you think she did this with a randomness? Or with no planning or care or intentionality or affection or joy? She just loves the feeling of good wool. There was the joy of an artist in this sweater. When it says, you knitted me together in my mind. Oh, look, here's the best part. E and D, Eric and Donna, look at that. Yes, that's so cool. Um, yes, it just became a marriage conference. Yeah, uh, yeah listen, um, look at this. And it says, this is the very sort of term, it's the, the, the careful work of an artist. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Do you think he does that uncaringly? No, but as an artist who loves what he's making. And, and what's the conclusion? Worship. I praise you. Why? Because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. What that means, I think actually a good English translation of what it says in Hebrew here is, I am wonderfully awesome. Now, that sounds like something Kanye West would say. But actually, when you start with God as the creator, and when this realization leads you to worship, there is nothing that could be more true. Let's not have some sort of self-loathing and call it humility. Let's not have some self-depreciation, oh, so lame. So... That dishonors God. It does. You're made in his image. I just I was marveling. I was worshiping God, not just because of the poem on a row, but the mind that God made that could make that up, memorize it, weave two languages together, put it together in a way that's, that's pleasurable and a bit disturbing at times. Just the human mind is an astounding thing. Do you know if you ask people, what do you think about your body, the first thing 90% of the people think of? The thing they like least about their body. I hate my feet. That, is that honoring to God? It's not. It's not. We need to stop this. Look in the mirror and say, I am wonderfully awesome. Right? And that is not some ridiculous, arrogant thing. When you ground it in God, who is ultimately awesome, who makes us in his image and gives us the ability to say, can you believe what he made when he made me? And you, we're all in this together, right? This is not an assertion of anyone over anyone else. That's what makes it also so different and not arrogance fearfully and wonderfully made, you should look in the mirror and go, oh, not for the reason you usually do, but because of what we're talking about here. That's dishonoring to God, to badmouth yourself all the time. Oh, we need to be really real about our sin, but also about being made in the image and likeness of God and redeemable because of Christ. Yeah, that's, that's what's happening here. My notes are lost in the sweaters. Yes, um, I'm just going to leave them here because they're just beautiful. And they'll remind you of who you are. Yes, this is who God is, carefully weaving you together in your mother's womb. That's who you are. Our, his works are, are wonderful, and we're the zenith of his works, the ultimate display of his glory in this earth. His human beings made in his image. 
He knows us in the secret places even before we were formed. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Oh, this has radical implications for the value we put on human beings, does it not? All human beings without exception. And now his thoughts are precious. Even though his thoughts leave us exposed before him in our sin and our frailty and our tattered state, but he still loves us. His hand comes to us and guides us. We value them. They're precious to me, are your thoughts. When you hear the word precious, don't think of a kitten. Think of gold. Think of diamonds here. It's so precious. No, no, precious as in unbelievable worth and value and enduring worth like diamonds and gold. Now, your kitten may be that to you, but uh, it's not really. It, it, it's Anyway, um, so that's who he is. He's this God. And he is the one who made us for himself. And that's what we find out here, don't we? L- listen to what David says. As he, he goes on and talks about his state before God, verse 18. If I were to count God's thoughts, they're more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Now, I don't think that's any more just about waking up in the morning. When he says, I awake here, I actually think this is starting to point to resurrection. Listen to what he says David does in Psalm 17. As for me, I shall behold your face. There it is, God's undeniable presence in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. When I awake, I think after I die, I will awake and in your righteousness, I'll behold your face and I'll be satisfied with your likeness. This is the God who even awakens us from death and cares for us in that way. Jesus goes to a little girl who has died and he goes to her bedside with her weeping family and says, little girl, it's time to get up. And she does. And he makes sure she has a meal. With God, even death is vanquished with a word. It's time to get up. And that victory over death is something that God works out daily in your life, caring for you as a loving father. I was able to take Caroline, my 17-year-old daughter, with me on this trip to Portland that we just got back from last night. And I I got up at 4.30 one morning to do some work. And before I left our hotel room, I, I... walked by the bed Caroline was in and I noticed that the blanket had fallen off and that even though she wasn't consciously aware of it I could tell she was cold she was curled up in a ball trying to get all the body heat from herself she could and so I did what any good father does I went over and I picked up her blanket and I put it over her right up to her neck and I tucked her in and then I stood over her bed and I prayed for her. And I thought to myself, Lord, this is just a glimpse of how you care for us. A lot of the time, I, I'm not even aware of my needs, but you are. I'm not sure how to meet them, but you are. I don't have the ability to meet my needs, but you do. That's what he's like. He's a God who, yes, is terrifyingly present unless you're walking with him as a father who loves you that way. 
Because the Bible says God so loved the world because we got our acts together. No, it says God so loved the world because we were so lovable. God so loved the world because we attained a level of moral formation. No, it says God so loved the world he gave his only son. Not because of us, but because of him. That's what he's like. That's the way he loves like a father who defeats the ultimate enemies of death and evil and evildoers like the end of our passage says so that we can trust him knowing he's a God who loves us and cares for us not only in the big things like defeating our sin and death through Christ but in caring for us in daily ways taking the blankets of our lives and covering us up because we're cold. That's the kind of God he is so that we can get to where David eventually gets. He says, search me, O God, and know my ways. See if there's any wicked way in me. Now he's inviting God, inviting him so he can understand his ways as well and move toward God in and out of those ways. That's who this God is for us, this God of grace, this God of love. Do you know how loved you are this morning? That's what I want to ask you here as we close. Do you have any idea how loved you are by God? A good understanding of God will lead you to a holy terror. And until you get there, I don't think you see who God is. But if you stay with an understanding of him long enough, you will get to a God who loves you so much he was willing to send his son to die on a cross for you when you didn't deserve it at all. Hadn't earned it at all. For God so loved because he's so loving. That's who this God is. Oh, we're all inclined to run from God. It's the ultimate foolishness. Listen uh, to the way Francis Thompson ends his poem, the hound of heaven. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me. Save only me. All which I took from thee, I did but take, God says. Not for thy harms, but just that thou might seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost I have stored up for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand and come. Halts by me that footfall. Is my gloom after all? Shade of his hand outstretched caressingly. Ah, findest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou dravest love from thee who dravest me. You drive God away. You drive love from yourself. You drive the caressing and strong hand of a God who loves you with his presence and power and knowledge just the way you need to and desperately want to be loved. That's who he is. That's the God we find in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We are a people in need of help, in need of a view of you. This psalm teaches us in need of a view of ourselves. This psalm teaches us. 
a view of life as you've intended it for us. Help us, Lord, to love what is good, abhor what is evil, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor because of who you are and who we are. We pray this in the name of the one who did it all. Amen.